U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the mutinous Christoph the XO. I, well, I wouldn't say mutinous. I think you're thinking mutant-like as far as my appearance. But mutinous, no, 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 no. I, 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 am, I live to serve, Captain. Oh, you're right. I used the wrong word. I'm sorry. Yes, you are a mutant. You have that that weird second head coming out of the top of your head. Hey, that's why we're in an audio medium. Let's let's keep the details under wraps. So we are had got we we've gone back in the even further in the past than we already were. Uh, we are back with the American Revolution, re-recording our lost episodes. So last time, the British had just sent 32,000 men to start their summer campaign in 1776 on the shores of the American coastline. So, we're going to pick it up there. Are you ready to get it away? Oh, I'm ready. Let's cast off. So that brings us to New York. So, uh, General Howie, he takes his forces out of Boston and now focuses on capturing New York City, which is, which was at that time just the southern tip of Manhattan Island. Howie's force arrived off of Staten Island on June 30th, 1776. And his army just captures it. No resistance whatsoever. He just walks in and says, this is mine now. And everybody else said, yep. So to defend this city, George Washington took his forces and spread them along the shores of the New York's harbor, concentrating mostly on Long Island and Manhattan. Now, the British, they recently hired mercenaries. You know who these mercenaries are? Uh, if I remember, they're the Hessians. Exactly. That is 100% spot on. Yes. The British have them assembling now. Okay. Uh, Washington had newly issued the uh, Declaration of American Independence and read this to his men and the citizens of New York City. Now, of course, as you can imagine, Washington's position is extremely dangerous because he has to divide his forces between Manhattan and Long Island, which means he did not have full strength for any opposing force. Now, military critics did note that Howie could have trapped and destroyed Washington's entire army if he had landed on Manhattan. But instead, Howie decided to mount a frontal assault against Long Island instead. So the British, they land 22,000 men on Long Island. Wow. This is at the end of August, and they just annihilate the continent in the war's largest battle, taking over 1,000 prisoners and driving the rest of them back to Brooklyn Heights. 
Now, instead of pressing an advantage and pursuing them, he how he decides to lay siege to the heights. He claimed he wanted to spare men's lives, specifically his men's, from you know assaulting the uh, fortifications there. I can see that. Yeah, well, he restrained his subordinates from landing what more than likely would have been the finishing blow against Washington's forces. Oh, I just wonder if he was concerned because given how long it would take to cross the Atlantic, I mean, if you needed reinforcements and they're coming from the mainland, or just England, how long would it have taken them to request reinforcements, assemble reinforcements, and then deliver reinforcements? So I'm, I have to imagine he's thinking from the perspective of I have to kind of guard what I have because it has to last me a while. Well, I think that, uh, A, you're absolutely right about the reinforcements, so we'll map that out here in a minute. Okay. But B, I don't think it was more of... The British, a lot of times, had the, at this time, had a attitude of, we are the one, the only, the best, nobody can do better than us. So, a lot of that has to do with what the decision-making in a lot of these things are. But the fact that uh, he wanted to spare his, man's li his men's lives here is, I think that he think he, in his mind, would think, it's only the, these, these guys. We just trounce them. We'll just circle them up, circle them up. They'll have to surrender, and the war's done. Yeah. He's completely and 100% wrong, but, you know, until he suffers a huge defeat, this is how they, they feel. That makes sense. It took the British a year to raise these 32,000 men and send them over. Wow. So, I mean, it, it's time-consuming. This is the age of sail as well, so you're also at the mercy of the wind. So it takes uh, quite a long time to sail across the ocean blue. So Washington initially reinforces his uh, exposed position, but then personally directs the withdrawal of his remaining army, all of them, and all of their supplies across the East River on August 29th to 30th during the evening. And he didn't lose a man or a bullet. He lost nada. Wow. That's very well executed. Well, he had a little bit of help, too. Remember that uh, wind I was just talking about? Yes. It was very unfavorable for the British warships blocking their escape. I see. 
Hmm. Divine providence, perhaps? Maybe. Uh, now, a peace conference happens September 11th to explore the possibility of a negotiated solution. The British then uh, advanced Lord North's, quote, fixed contribution formula of the uh, year that just happened and indicated that other laws could be revised or repealed so long as the Americans acknowledge Britain's sovereignty and authority over them. And uh, you know what the Americans' reply was? Um, nuts to that? Close. They insisted that they would not give up the Declaration of Independence. They said, we're done with you redcoats. Get off of my land. I'm sure there were many, many nervous uh, onlookers thinking, oh, good. We, we have a solution that'll end this and we can go back to the way things were and be under Britain. And then the people, of course, negotiating are like, no, 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 we're 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 on our own now. And so, I'm sure this was a this took courage. Oh, of course. But uh, yeah, they said, nuts to that, get off our shores. So Howie resumes his attack <laughs> on September 15th. Yeah. He lands about 12,000 men on Lower Manhattan, quickly taking New York City. Uh, the Americans, they withdraw north up to Harlem Heights, where they battled the next day, repulsing a British advance. And then on September 21st, a just completely devastating fire breaks out in the city which the uh, Americans were widely blamed for. Oh. Although although there was never any proof. Oh, uh, by the way, arson, go ahead and drink. Oh. That's the... Uh, that, <laughs> that's traditional. That's the, 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 that, that's the uh, U.S. Navy history drinking game. Excellent. And every time uh, there's arson. <laughs> well, it, it, it happens quite a bit, so yes. Yeah. Uh, so, on October 12th, the British make an attempt to uh, encircle the Americans. And this fails because of Howie's decision to land on an island that was easily cut off from the mainland. So, the Americans now evacuate Manhattan. And on October 28th, that they fight the Battle of White Plains against the British that are running after them. But Howie makes a, a mistake. He decides he's not going to attack Washington's, you know, very vulnerable force. Because when you're retreating, you're vulnerable. Oh, yes. And he, he, he attacks a hill instead. And this hill has no strategic significance at all. Okay, so this is at least the second time in this just podcast 
time frame that he could have wiped out Washington's forces and put an end to it, but, uh, but chose differently. And this one, I don't understand. No, I think this was more stupidity. Maybe he was a really big fan of having the high ground. Maybe. Um. Huh. That's just. That's peculiar. It's it's it it is definitely weird. But you know, Washington is re has retreated now. And Howie returns to Manhattan and captures Fort Washington in mid-November, taking about 3,000 prisoners. Wow. This is when the infamous prison ship system starts. This happens in New York Harbor for the rest of the war. It is brutal. It is disgusting. So I did an interview with uh, Eric J. Dalton with his uh, about his book Rebels at Sea during the American Revolution, and we have a nice chat about uh, the prison ships and how bad this was. So if you, if you want to know more, uh, you can listen to that episode, or you could even get the book. It's a wonderful book. It really is. I I went through it in one day. That's how, that's how good it was. Uh, but to, just to, to tell you real quick, um, more American soldiers and sailors died here in these prison ships than in every battle of the war combined. That is how brutal it was. So it's practically a death sentence if you were taken prisoner, it sounds like. A lot of times, yeah. Every morning, the British would say, bring up your dead. Uh... Anyway, if you want to know more about that, listen to the episode or get the book or both. Preferably both. Anyway, so <laughs> Howie, he... He takes a guy named Sir Henry Clinton and gives him 6,000 men and tells him to go seize Newport in Rhode Island so that the British fleet can use it. Because now they got, you know, prison boats in the harbor of New York. And uh, Sir Henry Clinton is able to take the uh, Newport, Rhode Island area without encountering any real major resistance. Uh, Clinton was actually not very happy with this because he thought that his forces would have been better employed up the Delaware River where they might have inflicted uh, really severe damage on the Americans that were still retreating. So General Lord Con Cornwallis is actually the guy now chasing Washington. And his army through New Jersey. And then Howie, in his wisdom, orders him to halt. And that is when we get the uh, the famous uh, picture of Washington 
escaping across the Delaware into Pennsylvania. Howie refuses to order a pursuit across the river. Even though, you know, they had the American, this American army on the ropes. They, if they would have just continued the pursuit, they probably would have wiped him out to the last man. Yeah, that's just peculiar. Like, time after time, we we see this, and I don't know if it was um, just the tactics of the day, and now we have this to learn from, for modern tactics, but that's... Even then, if you look at older battles, Alexander the Great or uh, Genghis Khan, r routing enemies, that's that's where victory was won. Yeah. I mean, at this time, he had less than 5,000 men now that were fit for duty when he crosses the Delaware. And then he would be reduced to just 1,400 men after enlistments expired at the end of the year. Uh, Congress now moves inland and abandoned Philadelphia in despair. And although popular resistance to British occupation was growing across the countryside. So uh, if nobody knew before now, Philadelphia was the capital at first. But yeah, now people are starting to fight the British all across the countryside. And so Howie starts to divide his forces in New Jersey into small detachments that were, uh, you know, and, and when you start splitting your forces, you start getting weaker mm -hmm. and weaker and weaker and weaker. And uh, Howie decides to put the weakest forces closest to Washington and his army. What? Yep. And so Washington, he decides to take the offensive. And he crosses the Delaware again, very stealthfully, during the night of December 25th to 26th. And captures nearly 1,000 Hessians at the Battle of Trenton. They were caught unawares and not dug in. Ooh. They hadn't even dug in. Cornwallis then marches to take, retake Trenton and is repulsed and then outmaneuvered. Washington is showing why. He's George Washington. Yeah, Washington uh, attacks their rear guard at Princeton on January 3rd, taking around 200 more prisoners. Howie then concedes most of New Jersey to good old George. And, you know, Howie has numeric superiority over Washington. And even though Washington enters his winter quarters at Morristown, New Jersey, saying, yeah, you ain't getting rid of me that easy. And now he's going to sit there for the winter. 
And as you can imagine, this gives the Americans a huge morale boost. Just because he's uncaptured and uh, not defeated yet? Or uh, I don't exactly because Washington Because Washington has just defeated a numer uh, numerically superior force. Nice. Yeah, that's... And now he's camped out right across from him, just waving and smiling for the winner. That's awesome. Uh, throughout the winter, the New Jersey militia continues to harass the British and Hessen forces near their three posts along the Raritan River. Uh, and then, of course, Washington in April is like, how did Howie not try to attack my army at all? Because, yeah, Howie just sat there and took it. He didn't try anything. Are there any theories that Howie is an American sympathizer or something? Because maybe he got this post and he was very reluctant to actually fulfill his duty as a commander. I mean, not... Not to undercut his loyalty or anything, but so many instances so far where he just, he he's choosing to do something that is counter to what you would perceive as a victorious, you know, this leads to victory, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, he joined the army in 1746 and saw a lot of battle. He was in the War of the Austrian Succession in the Seven Years of War. He became known when uh, for his role in the capture of Quebec in 1759. Uh, and that was against the French. Mm -hmm. He uh, led the troops in that costly victory at uh, Bunker Hill. And then, uh, you know, he, as we just discussed, he did take New York and Philadelphia, but then uh, poor planning happens. Yeah, he just started making uh, bad choices. And I'm sure... Maybe the choices didn't seem bad at the time, or maybe he was getting intelligence that supported his choice in some degree, like, oh, this is what the Americans are doing, this is what to expect, this is what we anticipate their future moves to be. Well, very well, we'll just do this and not risk uh, our troops unnecessarily, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. In October of 77, he sends a letter of resignation to London, complaining that he had not been adequately supported during the campaigns. And then uh, in April of the next year is when he finally got uh, word back that, okay, yeah, you can quit. Okay. So, that sounds to me like more, that's, that was more to me like uh the, the guy in charge trying to lay blame off of the little people. 
Yeah. I mean, if he enlisted 30 years prior, and he's seen quite a lot of war, I don't know. Well, um, you can get out the Ouija board later. You can ask him yourself, maybe. Well, I although I dabble in the occult, perhaps uh, I probably I've been trying to quit. So don't don't I, don't I, tempt me. I, I've noticed your your second head getting smaller. Yeah. Well. Thanks. I think. So, uh, that's going to bring us to 77. Now, during this time, the British had two main armies in North America. They had one in Quebec and one in New York. Uh, in London, there's a guy named Lord George Germain, and he approves a campaign for these armies to do. This was to converge on Albert... Albany, New York, and to divide the American colonies into two. Now, he did not give any expressed orders to Howie, so he was left to his own self to develop his own plans. So, in uh, 76, in November, Howie requests a large amount of reinforcements so he could launch attacks against Philadelphia, New England, and Albany. These reinforcements were not approved. So Howie modified his plan to launch an attack against Philadelphia only. He wanted to go to Philly. Get him some of that Philly cheesesteak. Probably visit the Rocky statue. Wait yeah. a minute. Yeah, uh, continue. <laughs> uh, Jermaine, he, he was like, okay, go for it. Go get your Philly cheesesteak. Because, you know, he believed that Philadelphia could be taken in time for Howie to be able to coordinate with the Northern Army. Now, Howie, he decides to send his army to Philadelphia by sea via the Chesapeake Bay. Instead of just taking the shorter routes over land, either through New Jersey or through the Delaware Bay. So this pretty much left him unable to assist the uh, army up in Quebec, who is commanded by a guy named John Burgon. So he screwed that up. <laughs> so speaking of John Bergion, he leads an expedition from Quebec. It, his goal was to seize the Lake Champlain and Hudson River corridor, which would isolate New England from the rest of the American colonies. Good old John's invasion had two components. He would lead about 8,000 men along Lake Champlain towards Albany, and a second column of around 2,000 would move down the Mohawk River Valley and link up with him in Albany. 
So Johnny, he sets off in June and he recaptures Fort Ticaronda in early July. And there his march started slowing down because the Americans knocked down trees into his path. And, you know, his excessive baggage train can't get over these trees. That's pretty clever. I wouldn't mm -hmm. have anticipated that being as big of a problem as it turned out to be. But yeah, I mean, if you're carrying via horse and carriage all of your supplies, that that's trouble. And that's what they were doing. This is the hor horse and uh, buggy days. Mm -hmm. So uh, John sends out a detachment to see supplies, and they were decisively defeated in the Battle of Bennington by a American militia in August. And that means that uh, John went from 8,000 men to 7,000 men. Oh. Now, the uh, 2,000 men detachment, it, it was led by a guy named Barry St. Ledger. He had uh, about 1,000 Englishmen and about 1,000 Native Americans in his uh, force. Hmm. And they laid siege to Fort Stanwyck. Now, the American militiamen, they see this, and they round up their Native American allies. And they all march to, you know, stop this siege. And they get ambush. Oh. Yeah, at the Battle of Orensky. And they get scattered. So a second relief uh, expedition is sent out. And this time it is led by the one, the only, the Benedict Arnold. And uh, once the uh, apparently once the uh, Native American supporters of uh, Saint Ledger sees this, they abandon. They just break off and, and retreat. And this, of course, forces St. Ledger to break the siege and go back to Quebec. Wow. So, I guess Benedict Arnold was pretty well known by the enemy at this point, and his presence alone made them turn tail? Or was it something else, do you think? I could have been the his presence and also seeing other Native Americans with him. They, you know, they don't want to uh, spill. At this time, they don't want to spill, you know, other Native American blood. They'll go back to their own wars after, you know, the white men are done killing themselves. Right. So Johnny's army has now been reduced to about 6,000. And they need to garrison Ticaronda. And guess what? Thanks to those nasty trees, he's starting to run out of supplies. Hmm. 
But, you know, he, even though he has all these setbacks, he is determined to push on to Albany. You know, the guys in London tell him, go get Albany. He wants to go get Albany. He's a team player. So, um, a American army of 8,000. These are officially commanded by General Horatio Gates. But it's actually being led by a good old Benedict Arnold. Hmm. They entrenched themselves about 10 miles south of Saratoga. That's New York, for those who don't know. Johnny tries to outflank them, but he failed at the first battle of Saratoga in September. He Johnny's situation is now very, very desperate. And he needed help from Howie's army in New York. And he thought that Howie was on his way, like he was told to be on his way. But, you know, Howie's not. <laughs> he had instead sailed away on his expedition to capture Philadelphia. So, uh, American militiamen just started flocking to this area of operations. And they swelled the American forces facing off old Johnny to 11,000. Whoa. That's huge. Yeah. So then the second battle of Saratoga happens. And at the end of that, on October 17th, John surrenders. I mean, 11,000 versus 6,000. Yeah, that's... And if I remember right, there are naval aspects to these battles. So we will probably be getting more in-depth into these battles at a later time. Okay. Now, there was a British general, a guy named Clinton in New York City, who did attempt a diversion to try to help John out in... Uh, beginning of October he did capture two key forts but once he heard John surrendered he's like all right guys we're outie bye right yeah I mean once your counterpart gives up it's like well we I was relying on you and now there's really no point yeah so Saratoga this is really the turning point of the war this boosted confidence and determination for the Americans. Because Howie is actually also successful in occupying Philadelphia. And a lot of people suffered for it. He was not good. And also the victory at Saratoga encouraged France to make a alliance with America. An open alliance. So there was no secrecy involved. France was like, we got your back. Nice. That's, I mean, if you're going to have anybody have your back at this point in time, France is a great ally to have. And you know what else? They also hated the British. Oh, yeah. So 
A any attempt to undermine the British, they were all for. As you can imagine, for the British, this war has now become way more complicated. And just to be clear, it wasn't open war with France. It was just France was supporting America, correct? Well, right. Uh, France had actually been secretly supporting America for two years up to this point. This is when they came out of the closet. I see. Yeah, this, I'm risking an open war with those, I mean, two major powers of Europe would have been a whole different story, but I think just being able to supply a minor conflict, I, at least for, from France's perspective, is much more beneficial. Right, and once they had uh, confidence that uh, the Americans could actually pull this off, they were like, hey, we're friends. Didn't you guys know that? Didn't you know you've been getting f shot with French bullets? That's right. All that gunpowder, that was us. So let's move over to Pennsylvania. Remember how he's still there? Mm -hmm. So he begins his campaign in June by doing a few maneuvers in New Jersey, which, you know, fails to engage Washington's primary force. So he loads his troops onto transports and slowly sails them to the northern end of Chesapeake Bay. And he lands 15,000 troops on August 25th at the head of the Elk River. Washington positioned his 11,000 men in a strong position along the Brandywine River between the British and Philadelphia. Howie does end up outclanking and defeating him on September 11th. Now, the French, they had observers watching all this. And they noted that Howie failed to follow up on its victory, which would have destroyed Washington's army. He's been doing this a lot. Oh, yes. So what did the French have to say about that? Something in French? Oh, yes. I bet it, was, I bet it sounded cool. Merci beaucoup. Washington, <laughs> You know, I'm guessing something in that. Uh, apologies to our French listeners. That was, uh, yeah, that was clearly nonsense. Let's continue. Yes, okay. Yeah, he is completely embarrassed now. So, moving on. Continental Congress again for the second time abandons Philadelphia. And on September 26th, Howie finally outmaneuvers Washington and marches into the city opposed. Uh, then he, Howie splits his army to reduce the rebel forts, as he called them, that blocked his communications up the Delaware River. Now, uh, Washington, he was like, you know what happened? You guys remember what we did in Trenton and how we, we messed him up? You guys want to do it again? 
So on October 4th, he mounts a surprise attack against the British at Germantown. And Howie fails to alert his troops there. Even though he knew that the attack was about to happen the previous day, he got that news. I, I just, I can't believe, maybe, so I wonder if there was a string of intelligence that he was getting, and maybe there were other communications that like, hey, the the Americans are attacking on this day, and it didn't happen, and so, like a misinformation campaign of sorts, I, I can't imagine why a person in Howie's position would have knowingly disregarded that warning way ahead of time this is stupefying to me this this whole episode and this chain of events with him is requires further study maybe we need to do a shirt don't be at howie oh yes that's right <laughs> not not mandel we're talking about uh old general howie we can have a a picture uh um a rendering of General Howie's and not uh, the the bald and entertaining Howie Mandel. Tell you what, you draw it, I'll put it up on our store. You assume I can draw. Well, maybe you don't. Okay, I will... No, I don't. You, be, be prepared to be underwhelmed. <laughs> so, anyway, the, the attack happens. And the British are in danger of not only retreating, but of routing. A full-on rout. But that's when the Americans start making stupid decisions. And it ends up with Washington being routed. Well, not, not routed, you know, repulsed. Okay. And he does receive heavy losses. Uh, the two armies meet again at White Marsh in December, where, you know, after some, you know, minor battling, some little skirmishes, Howie decides, you know what, guys, let's just go home. I'm bored. He completely ignores the, vulnerabil the vulnerability of Washington's rear, where if he would have outflanked them, they would have cut Washington off from his baggage train. And his provisions. So George and his army escape. They they uh, made camp at Valley Forge in December of 1777, about 20 miles away from Philadelphia, and they stayed there for the next six months. It was cold. Yeah. He did lose about 2,500 men over the winter from uh, disease and exposure, which means that his army was reduced to about 4,000 effective fighters. That's a lot of losses just because, yeah, I guess I, with every conflict, there's always environmental effects that cause numerous casualties, but this is... Twenty five hundred men when you when you only have so many, that's 
That's a lot. That's devastating. Yeah. Now, at the same time, Howie is in Philadelphia. And his men are all warm and comfortable because they're sleeping in beds and in buildings and everything like that. And the guy makes no, absolutely no effort to exploit George Washington and his army's weak position. Now, Washington, he, he didn't. He was no sloucher. The next spring, his army emerges from Valley Forge in pretty good order because they spent the winter training. And this was done by a guy named Baron von Steuben. And he introduced the most modern Prussian methods of organization and tactics. So, as we, uh, when we talk briefly about Howie in the first place, he, he submits his resignation. And, you know, he, it took a long time, but it was finally uh, accepted. And while he waited for word back, he spent his time in Philadelphia preparing his arguments for a expected uh, par parliamentary inquiry. He knows at this point in time that he's not been doing good. And he expected to get uh, brought up in front of the uh, big wigs to explain himself. Did he... So, I guess, what was he... What were the potential consequences of this inquiry? Like, could he be... Facing jail time or execution, even? Oh, yeah. Or... Uh, depending on how what they decide to charge. If they decide to charge him, what that crime would have been, yeah, up to and including execution. Wow, that's, I mean, I guess if you're leading your nation's campaign in wartime and you make mistake after mistake or a willing decision to... Uh, kind of nerf your ability to win, yeah, that could be, I guess, seen as traitorous to a degree. Yeah. I mean, the way the bigwigs are looking at it, he had twice as many men as Washington. And they figure because of uh, his memory of uh, the Bunker Hill battle, after that, he was really reluctant to attack entrenched American forces. So it's like, you're not doing your job. You've just gotten so many more guys killed. What are you doing? We're going to rip those stars off of your feathered hat or whatever he wore. At the very minimum. So, General Clinton replaces him as the British Commander-in-Chief on May 24, 1778. So, now that Howie's out, we're going to be out for this week. 
So, uh, any thoughts, conditions, uh, whatever, whatever thoughts, uh, that you want to partake before we move on to the, uh, honoring one of our, uh, fallen angels? I think just the whole concept of the American Revolution, I can see why it built up. I can see why the Americans, when they were living in a land of just remarkable freedoms, probably more free, much more free than we are today, and uh, being compelled to to be more restrained and have more control over the lives and how the minority that, that pushed for rebellion was vocal and successful. It, the whole thing unfolding is interesting from modern eyes to me. It's just like, so if they were unwilling to put up with that crap, what are we unwilling to put up with, you know? Like, what what is our breaking point? What is our... Would we ever be willing to go against the government or the? Uh, is it different because it's our local government versus uh, across the sea government? I don't know. That all those questions really just kind of, as we replay what the actual real life consequences were of that. I mean, people freezing to death as a result of battling against the English. Uh, like decisions have consequences, right? And everything's a trade-off. And what, at what point is it worth doing those things? So I don't know. It's just a question that everybody should should face. See what they think. Mm-hmm. All right. So we are teamed up with HeroCars.us, where we honor one of our fallen angels at the end of each episode. And today we are going back to the Marine Corps, where we're going to honor Caleb John Powers. His hometown was Mansfield, Washington. His unit was the Company F, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division, Camp Pendleton, California. He received the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was August 17th, 2004, killed in action in Al-Anbar province, Iraq. He was 21 years of age. So Caleb Powers overcame a difficult childhood to fulfill his dream of enlisting in the United States Marine Corps, which he did on his 18th birthday. He is, he was a registered Cherokee and he was born to John and Tracy Powers on October 31st, 1982 in the small town of Tillamook, Oregon. The town, this town sits at the end of Tillamook Bay along the Pacific Ocean. For a time, he attended elementary school in Cloverdale, Oregon, but Caleb was an emotionally troubled child. Later diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, he had difficulty adapting to the structure of classroom. His parents divorced as well when he was a young child. By the age of seven, after his mother sought the help of behavioral experts, Caleb was sent for care to the nonprofit agency Child Help USA in Lignum, Virginia. Child Help serves the needs of children who are abused, neglected, or have behavioral challenges. 
Caleb wasn't abused or neglected, but his behavior made it difficult for his single mother. Child help provided the structure and expertise he needed to thrive. At first, Caleb was a repeat runaway at the facility, and at age nine, he was placed in one of Child Help's residential facilities, where he met his mentor, Navy Admiral William Owens, former vice chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, and the two would form a strong bond, and Caleb began to flourish. He looked up to the U.S. Marines, who volunteered their time at Child Help, and at the age of 13, Caleb was set to live with his aunt and uncle, Jackie and Mike Tupling, on their farm near Mansfield, Washington. He joined the Young Marines and set his mind on becoming an infantryman. The Young Marines organization focuses on teaching the values of leadership, teamwork, and self-discipline so its members could live and promote a healthy, drug-free lifestyle. Caleb Powers took to farm life. He and dreamed of buying his own ranch after his military service was complete. His strong desire to become a Marine infantryman never waned. He enlisted in the United States Marine Corps on the first day he possibly could, his 18th birthday. Caleb graduated from Mansfield, from Mansfield High School in 2001 and was sent to Paris Island, South Carolina for basic training. From there, Powers was stationed at Camp Pendleton, California with Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division. While in California, he had a chance meeting with Jay Cooper, an entertainment executive who works in fundraising. Cooper and Powers discovered they had a shared com they had a shared connection with Child Help USA. Power remembers the Marines who had volunteered back in Virginia. It was an intent to do the same. Officials at Child Help said that Powers returned often to help with fundraising events and encouraged the children there to think about a brighter future. Cooper later recalled to the Associated Press, he was our poster Marine, just an amazing young man, a fine, inspirational young man who loved life. With Fox Company, Powers deployed as an infantry rifleman to Okinawa, Japan, and later to El Anbar province as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. American Marine regiments were in Ramadi, the largest city in Iraq's Al Anbar province, to provide safety for Iraqi citizens and the American troops stationed there. On August 17, 2004, Lance Corporal Powers had just begun his turn on rooftop guard duty when he was struck by a sniper's bullet. He was 21 years old. Powers had just two weeks remaining on his tour. Rosanna Powers, Caleb's older sister, who was also a Marine, received the news of her brother's loss a day before learning that her fiancé, Marine Sergeant Richard Lord was killed the following day by a roadside bomb. Lance Corporal John, Lance Corporal Caleb John Powers was laid to rest among his fellow Marines at Arlington National Cemetery, Section 60, Site 8003, across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. Family and friends remember him as someone who found his place on the farm and in the U.S. Marine Corps. The Young Marines Unit in Fredericksburg, Virginia, was named the Lance Corporal Caleb John Powers Young Marines to honor his service and sacrifice. So, Lance Corporal Caleb John Powers, we thank you. Thank you. All right. XO, 
Would you like to take us out? Uh, yes, sir. So, uh, hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, there's a couple different ways. Uh, you can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter or X, um, whichever you prefer to call it. Uh, the handle is at usnhistorypod, and you can send us messages that way. Uh, alternatively, you can join our Discord server, uh, interact with uh, fellow listeners and us. Uh, you can find that link in the show notes. Uh, also, we're on YouTube, so if you want to go to YouTube and listen to this, cool. If you want to listen to this on the podcast provider of your choice, that's also cool. Keep listening, and please uh, feel free to rate, uh, subscribe. Uh, if you're to, you to dole out stars to this podcast, we prefer five, but, you know, be, be honest with yourself and us. There's always... Uh, honest feedback is important, so, but yes, five, five works if you can't, you know, don't have, uh, any other opinions <laughs> either way. So, um, uh, I think that's everything. Uh, so. Sounds good to me. Cool. Well, thanks, Dale. All right. So as always, we are going to wish you guys a fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Thank you.